The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A piece of legislation on the most shocking social issue of the day is reportedly being adopted. Legislation in an area where progress has been thwarted for 30 years. And if you're curious as to what might be the single least inspiring soundbite possible from an avowed supporter of this important legislation, here it is. My view of the framework, if it leads uh, to a piece of legislation, I intend to support it. I think it's progress for the country. And I think the, the, the bipartisan group has done the best they can. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. I would run through a cray paper wall for that guy. Well, old Mitch may not sound too excited, but the gun control groups also aren't really that excited. Oh, they support it, but note, rightly note, there is a chasm between what this does or might do if it actually becomes law and what we need to happen. Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who proposed the legislation, isn't swearing that this will be the thing to reduce gun violence because it won't. But I think you have to compare it to the alternative, which is nothing. There is a case for nothing, not the Republican case for nothing, hoo-ha, more guns, but the Democratic case, Chris Murphy, has embraced nothing in the past on some issues. He's the Senate's leading voice on gun control now that Dianne Feinstein has slowed down. But in the past, he has refused to back proposals for so-called gun control legislation because they're just window dressing or barely meaningful. But within this framework, it's just a framework again, he is more optimistic about how the democratic process can combat gun violence. Because we were getting very close to a situation where gun violence was quelling democracy. Activists needed a win. Everyday families wanted some movement. Regular citizens were getting pretty desperate for any meaningful measure. Holding out for a better proposal, that wasn't going to happen. In fact, I sense so much desperation. I think we were nearing a breaking point of public anguish, turning to real anger over inability of government to engage on a really important issue to the public. These measures, from what I've read of them, red flag laws and the ability to check into juvenile records, they're not thunderous, they're not monumental, but they offer some progress. Something is infinitely more meaningful than nothing. Now, to be truthful, this isn't a situation of a half a loaf being better than no loaf at all. This wasn't getting halfway to where we need to get in terms of gun control, but it was something. It might save some lives. A cynic might regard, to go back to the loaf metaphor, a cynic might regard this measure as crumbs, but crumbs offer sustenance to the starving. On the show today, I spiel about the question of what would you think if the January 6th insurrection happened in our country? I, for one, would say I had no idea so many Belgians stupidly believed that Trump won the election. But first, the Roberti Roos Weapons Control Act of 1989 was the law that helped California greatly limit mass murders. The state is below the national average in that rubric, also on children's deaths from handguns, about half the national average. What makes this happen is legislation such as the aforementioned act. And I am joined by Mike Roos, who is the former Speaker Pro Tem of the California State Assembly. He was the man who navigated the Rocky Shoals to pass 
the Roberti Roos Weapons Control Act, and we talk about that legislation, how he got it done in California, if it could ever be achieved on a national level. Mike Roos, up next. Mike Roos was a member of the California State Assembly for 14 years. He rose to the rank of Democratic Majority Leader and Speaker Pro Tem. One of his greatest accomplishments occurred two years before he left elected office. It was the Roberti Roos Assault Weapons Control Act of 1989. This was a really significant piece of gun control. It was born after a particular tragedy, the likes of which had been affecting California for a while. And Mike joins me now to talk about how he got it passed and how effective it was and what politics were like in the state legislature back in his day. Thanks for joining me, sir. It's a, it's a, ple- it's a pleasure to talk to you about a very unpleasant, tragic reason that seems to perpetuate itself in our society. That is true, but from out of tragedy, what we want is elected officials to listen to the populace and do something. And at least in your case, in California, you did. So what was the precipitating event for this particular piece of legislation? Well, that's a question most people don't ask. And they quickly assume that it was the Stockton school tragedy, and it wasn't. Uh, I had been introduced to the subject matter uh, by Assemblyman Art Agnos, uh, who, when I walked into the hearing room, I saw all of these weapons, uh, which I thought had been borrowed from the United States Armor, uh, Army Armory, laid out on the witness table. And at that time, he began to open on a bill that would, I believe, uh, suggest a wait period before you could purchase these. And then, to my astonishment, found out that these weapons were freely sold everywhere in California, everywhere across the United States, and was appalled. And afterwards, I went up to him and I said, Art, I said, this is compelling. It's probably not going to pass, as you know, uh, but I would like to take over the subject matter if you ever left. Well, guess what? He ran for mayor successfully of San Francisco in the next year, and I took over the subject matter merely trying to get the same wait period that we had in place for handguns before you could purchase these. To interrupt, these were these were maybe the actual make and model was not AR-15, but these were prototypical automatic or semi-automatic rifles. But what you're telling me is you hadn't even seen these before. These weren't so widely in the public eye, because maybe there were no mass shootings, that you were surprised to learn that these guns were even available to civilians. Beyond surprise, shocked. And yes, uh, they were Uzis, uh, uh, they were AK-47s, they were everything that men and women used in war, uh, but altered to the degree that you could not uh, have an automatic selector switch uh, where they could fire as much capacity in the magazine. You could fire the magazine capacity only by pulling the trigger as fast as you could. 
That's making it semi-automatic. That's what makes semi-automatic. Now, an Uzi had been used in the horrible slaughter at the McDonald's in San Ysidro in 1984. This was a few years beforehand. Correct. And did you look at those guns, those rifles for the first time before the Stockton shooting or was this afterwards? Uh, before. Uh, literally uh, two years before. Right. So that was in maybe in 87. And so in January of uh, 89, the Stockton school shooting occurs and what? It it prompts you to reintroduce this bill? No. In 88, I had attempted and brought to the floor a bill that would require the same wait period for these assault weapons uh, as we have for handguns. And I got my butt royally kicked. And it infuriated me to the degree uh, that I then started meeting with chiefs of police along with Senator Roberti. Roberti was my state senator, so it was a natural fit, and uh, uh, brought him into the dialogue. Uh, and we started having statewide meetings and came to the conclusion that we weren't going to go for a wait period in 89. We were going to introduce bills in each of our houses, he in the Senate, me in the Assembly, that would actually ban these weapons, ban them. And then Stockton happened, and all that did, Michael, was give it terrific focus and terrific lift and a terrific rationale for why they did not belong in the state of California. Now, I have the uh, the makeup of each chamber in front of me. At the time, I believe it was 24 Democrats, 14 Republicans, and that was in the Senate, and in your chamber, 47 Democrats, 43 Republicans. Uh, the governor was Duke Majan, right? A Republican? A Republican governor, George Duke Majan. Correct. Right. So what were the politics of it? Did you need to, did you think you need to pass this in a veto-proof filibuster? Was it hard to even get all the Democrats um, involved because they defeated your measure in the last session? You hit it right on the head. We had no far-ranging, long-term strategy. It was vote by vote, committee by committee, house by house. And here's what happened. Stockton happened, and I had an enterprising press person who had relationships with the media. George was back, I believe, in New York at the time. And we immediately called our friends in the press to ask George Duke Majan, a man of impeccable honor and of a certain level of stubbornness where if he gave a commitment, uh, it would would take a tectonic shift to move him from that initial position. So we, we had the press ask him the question, do you see any reason why these weapons that were used by Patrick Purdy should be allowed to be sold in California? And he simply said no. And that's when we knew even before we'd gotten through the, ho- the first house of origin, we knew we had a great chance of getting a gubernatorial mm. signature. And what was it? Deal making? Was it appeals to emotion, appeals to politics? How would you convince enough of your fellow legislators to vote yes? That was the secret sauce that I'm about to reveal. On the uh, public safety committee, there were three Republicans and four Democrats. And one of the Democrats was out to off Speaker Willie Brown at the time. So he was going to be a no vote on anything that the majority leader brought forward. 
So I focused on the three Republicans. Long and the short of it is, uh, the best possibility was a guy named Chuck Quackenbush, uh, who represented the San Jose area. We had McNamara, the chief of police. We had the Mercury News running uh, editorial after editorial. We had emergency room docs. We had teachers all pressing him, pressing him, pressing him, and he just wouldn't budge. On top of that, he was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and so he knew the firepower and the capacity of these weapons, and he just wouldn't budge. And so here was the secret sauce. I went to a telemarketer and I said, if I gave you a map that basically went a mile out in each direction, would you be able to contact every registered voter in that area with a script? Absolutely. So using Quackenbush's house as ground zero, we went a mile out from his house contacted every registered voter. And this began on a Thursday afternoon. On Monday, which was the day of the hearing, I came into the Capitol. My staff said, you have to see Quackenbush immediately. I went into his office and he pulled a white handkerchief out of his back pocket and waved it ceremoniously in the air. I surrendered. His staff later told my staff, and this was before cell phones, mind you, that anywhere he went over the weekend, the phone was ringing, whether it was his office phone in Sacramento, his district office, or his home phone. I had been able to get, unofficially, his home phone number, and it rang off the wall literally for 72 hours. And he collapsed because he all knew the neighbor. They were neighbors of his. He knew the streets. He knew they were registered to vote. And we created a groundswell within San Jose to get their assemblymen to vote for this bill. And that unlocked, very frankly, uh, the prospect that this is going to happen. How much of a role did the gun lobby or specifically the NRA play? Unbelievable. Um, I'll, I'll tell two quick stories. One is I've never had so much mail on a daily basis as I did during this interlude. Um, of course, none were from my district. They were from all over the state, mainly rural areas. Uh, and then as the bill moved, they got more and more threatening. And to the point that I involved the state police on a couple of matters, let me just say that all of that letter writing and phone calls were prompted, obviously, by uh, the California... I, I can't remember quite the name, but it's the California Pistol Association that I later found out is more uh, right wing, if you will, than the NRA with, with respect to gun rights. Tell me about crafting the bill, because this was before the federal, I guess, version of your bill. And there's always a question about how to, def there's no such thing as an assault rifle. This is a term of art, and they're actually called ARs because Armalite first uh, manufactured the weaponry. So how did you define it so that you knew that you were banning what you wanted to ban? And also, I don't know, did you anticipate that manufacturers would read the exact wording and, you know, invent a slightly inverted 
pistol grip on an eight degree different angle and all of a sudden they have a quote unquote legal um, semi-automatic rifle. Well, I had heard this about you and I must tell you that <laughs> you're unbelievable in terms of really drilling down on what the opportunities and the problems were. Roberti and I both introduced a generic definition of what defined these weapons. And guess what? Within two weeks, the opposition was tearing it apart, basically saying this definition applies to every weapon. And just as we thought, your intent is not to get rid of assault weapons, it's to ban all guns in California. Well, this was shocking to us. We ran it by independent experts, and they shrugged and basically said, the opposition's right. So here's what I did. Roberti knew that he had, as president pro tem of the Senate, he knew he could get anything out of this house. I wasn't that confident. So I had a staff guy named Rich Milner. Rich Milner took the catalog of every gun manufactured anywhere in the world and went through the catalog page by page, weapon by weapon, and identified them. And that's what we exposed in the bill. Now, I thought at the time, the genius of that was, not only were you basically saying Uzis and ARs and, and AKs and all of the ones that everyone who's listening is familiar with, we basically put a provision in that said that the attorney general, if in fact a manufacturer wanted to make a slight change and call it the AR-17 and a half, wanted to do anything to get it out from the specific definition, that the attorney general could go before a magistrate and argue that this is nothing but a lookalike and the judge could then put it on the list so that it was a dynamic list of those weapons that were essentially assault in nature. That seems like a good fix, except if there is an attorney general uh, who's uh, aligned with the pistol group or an attorney general who's sufficiently right wing to not want to do it. Would the attorney general be conscribed by anything in the bill or at least uh, his or her official duties that they'd have to argue honestly? No. And, and once again, you've hit upon what a basic weakness is. We had Dan Lundgren. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, a, I remember him. Exactly. And and Dan refused to move on anything for that eight-year period. It was not until Bill Lockyer came in as attorney general uh, that once again that provision of the bill became active again. You did get passage. Yes, we know this. This is why it was the bill. And during the time it was in effect, um, what, what impact did it have and how did you measure the impact? I clearly didn't measure the impact. I just had the satisfaction that these weapons would no longer be so freely available that someone uh, with an itch could walk in uh, and have the right uh, amount of uh, money and walk out fully loaded, ready to do whatever they were going to do. Uh, however, uh, there was some research done where I think it was a 60% drop of those weapons in particular commission of crime. And again, I don't have the citation. It was in Sacramento Magazine, uh, which I retained somewhere. 
And that was it. Uh, there have been other supportive kinds of things. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 it really then leads me into my riff about things that we have universally banned, you know, starting with the Thompson submachine gun coming out of Prohibition and the gang wars in Chicago. But we've also banned as a nation brass knuckles, nunchuckas, switchblade knives. And the one that's the most astonishing to me is tragically a seven-year-old girl was killed by a lawn dart, uh, I think in the 80s. You can't find a lawn dart anywhere because it is patently illegal to manufacture and sell them. So we do know that if in fact something is, I mean, you don't hear about anybody getting crushed by brass knuckles anymore uh, with brain damage. You don't hear about deaths through switchblade knives. Not that they don't exist, but they are so taken off the market that they are no longer comfortably or used easily. What would you attribute your success and compare it to the sclerotic nature of our legislature in D.C. I know they have a background check, but the idea of doing a full ban or a partial ban is just was never even taken up. And I have four choices. Does it have something to do with the rules of the chamber? Does it something to do with the party composition of the legislative body, the preference of the voters the strength of the gun lobby or some other choice that you could think of? I think clearly we've become far more tribal in terms of, at least I had Quackenbush as a, as a willing listener. I had Sonny Mojanay as a Republican from San Diego, a willing listener. Bill Falanti, who represented Moran as a Republican uh, and, a, and a physician, a willing listener. I don't know how many willing listeners, so you can check that box of where it becomes almost a party loyalty test, uh, which is too bad. But I will skip to the end game of what I believe is missing, and it is the Quackenbush example. No legislator is going to move on the basis of emotion alone. But when you have voters that they know could be independent, could be liberal members of their own party, beginning to say, I usually don't like being a single interest voter, but it is so out of character and out of peace that we all expect in a community. I'm going to hold you to your vote on assault weapon ban or anything within that framework. And if you don't do, if you don't do something positive, I'm not going to vote for you in the next election. That's what moves legislators. And I don't think we've spent enough time or money focusing on the grassroots expression beyond the rallies and beyond the, the human emotion uh, that people express in the wake of these tragedies. So a year ago, it was almost uh, maybe a year and a couple days ago, this bill was overturned by the courts. Um, your name's on it. You no longer have responsibility for fighting for it. But how abreast of those legal developments have you been keeping? Fully abreast, mm -hmm. and and by the way, the San Diego uh, the San Diego judge uh, overturned Roberti Roos, but the Court of Appeals had basically lifted the stay until its deliberation, which has not come forward yet. So the the you can't you can't buy a uh, AR fifteen type weapon in California to this day. The bill is still in effect. 
Michael Roos is a political strategist and former legislative leader in the California State Assembly from the years 1977 through 1991. It is his name, of course, on the Roberti Roos Weapons Control Act of 1989. Thank you so much. Mike, it's a pleasure meeting you and talking to you. Thank you again. And now the spiel. A trait of the truly blinkered is the inability to see outside oneself. That is true for people as well as for countries. Americans are quite incurious about the outside world and as a secure superpower with oceans separating us from most of the dangers of the rest of the planet, it is easy to see why. But America's societal solipsism shows up in a few ways. One is not caring about the affairs of others and not caring about what others think of you. Not thinking about it, really, by which I mean not caring enough to even care. Sometimes we're prompted, again, as a people or a country, with the phrase, what must others think about us? You hear this as relates to presidents. The haters of President Trump told us we had lost prestige in the eyes of the world thanks to our president. The supporters of Trump say that Biden's weakness and Obama's before him lost respect for America. But there's another variation I hear a lot an attempt to reorient our nation's self-perceptions. Chuck Todd posed it on Meet the Press. If this were happening in another country, what would we think? That it's strong enough to preserve its democracy and rule of law or subject to the rule of the mob? Well, what of it? I took the question to clearly imply that we would probably think that the other country was a failed or failing state. We would ascribe phrases like banana republic to that country. But I say that doing so depends on us actually not having much knowledge of other countries at all. Do we call France or UK failing states? Do we say they're slipping towards chaos or autocracy? Descriptions Americans have begun to embrace towards America? We don't say that, but look at what has befallen these countries. In the UK, they have a dodgy truth-averse leader, and their politics is also quite violent. Judged against the baseline societal violence, it's worse and more shocking than the United States. When the issue of Brexit was tearing the country apart, this happened. Joe Cox was an aid worker turned lawmaker. Her life spent helping others. But no one could help her when a man brutally stabbed and then shot her on the street in broad daylight. And then last year, it happened again. A good and gentle man. He showed charity and compassion to all. The most committed MP you could ever hope to meet. Just two of the tributes paid to the Essex MP, David Amos, murdered today as he was holding a constituency surgery. The political assassination of two members of parliament within five years. No members of the U.S. House or Senate in the United States, a much larger country with a hundred times as many guns, have been killed during the same period, or indeed for decades. In France... The former French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, has been sentenced to spend a year in home detention for corruption. Then Sarkozy got another one-year sentence for illegal financing his 2012 re-election bid, seven months after he received the jail term you just heard about. And it wasn't just the criminal conviction 
of the president who sat across from George W. Bush and Barack Obama. France has a nationalist anti-immigrant party that is in many ways more virulent than ours. Of course, Russia and China are autocracies, so we have now just covered all five permanent members of the Security Council at the United Nations. And I'm not so sure the United States isn't the most highly functional among them. These other countries are beset by scandals, ineptitude, infighting, or much, much worse. If you look at the list of the freest countries of the world, put together by places like Freedom House or The Economist's Democracy Index, you will find at the top of those rankings consistently are small Nordic nations. You'll find New Zealand and Iceland and Ireland, low populations, homogeneous states that, to their credit, really are free, doing quite well. Also, let's credit Germany, which always winds up high on these lists, and Canada and Australia. Those countries have had immigration crises and a trucker convoy to attest to some degree of friction, but most are functional, and I would say more functional than the United States. But another country said to be freer, and all these lists that you look at, maybe just a little bit, but consistently freer than the U.S., is Israel. Their former president, Benjamin Netanyahu, is currently involved in a court case against his predecessor, Ehud Olmert. And the question is, was Olmert out of bounds in labeling Netanyahu's family as having mental illness? Details of the trial suggest the description has merit. Netanyahu is also on trial for bribery charges, and the entire government could come toppling down very soon. Let's take South Korea, 16th on the economists list to the United States 26th. The current president of South Korea took office one month ago. He and his predecessor do walk the countryside as free men. But before them, let's go down the list of South Korean presidents. Convicted, convicted, jumped off a cliff to avoid conviction. There were two who weren't convicted of crimes, then convicted of conspiracy to commit insurrection. Don't worry, he lived in a Buddhist temple for a couple of years. You are, in fact, more likely to be convicted of bribery or worse after being president of South Korea than you are likely to go on a speaker's tour after being president of South Korea. And the percentage of South Koreans who say it's essential to live in a democracy is now 50% for almost all age groups. Now on to another big G20 country, Italy. King News, the former prime minister of Italy heading to prison just a short time ago, Silvio Berlusconi was sentenced to four years behind bars for tax evasion. Tax evasion should not be the crime that's raising eyebrows within Wikipedia's 22 different entries under Berlusconi trials. So ask me again, Chuck, but do that thing I like where you call me Leanne. Leanne, what would, uh, what would we say about another democracy going through this? I think about it exactly as I do from within this country's borders as an American. It's a terrible thing that must be prosecuted, and it is being prosecuted, and the rioters shouldn't be the only ones being held responsible, and they aren't. Witness the very hearing that gave rise to this discussion in the first place. Many countries in the world are racked with problems. Large, developed, quote-unquote, democratic, powerful countries. Just as it's American-centric to think we're exceptional in the sense of better or blessed by God, it's also American-centric not to realize that problems like this are more the rule than the exception throughout the world, even within countries not said to be, quote, slipping towards civil war. What would I say if I saw it in another country? 
I would wish that country had as robust a rule of law and as long a tradition of rejecting tyranny as the United States has. Although, what I'd probably do is change the topic to Eurovision or soccer. After all, other countries have their own problems and distractions to deal with. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist senior producer. Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions, is also the founder of an obscure sect called The Church of Eternal Life. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>